Welcome to the Motorhome Matt podcast. Caravans, campervans, motorhomes and more. It's the place to get hints, tips and impartial advice from the expert himself, Matt Sims. Brought to you by thatleisureshop.com. Join us on the journey with Motorhome Matt. Well, this is a big day for the Motorhome Map podcast. We're here in Basingstoke at one of the UK's best known brands, the AA, the Automobile Association, a brand that is in fact known throughout the world. And we're here to interview none other than its president, Mr. Edmund King. Good morning, Matt. What is a typical day in the life of the president of the AA? Well, I think what I like about this job, I've always been fascinated in cars and motoring and politics. When I was a kid, I grew up next door but one to Colin Chapman, the founder of Lotus Cars. So from a very early age, I loved cars. I loved sports cars. I loved watching them go past. I loved radio. I used to listen to Jimmy Young's show on the radio, and I loved the kind of media And then I got into politics as well, and I studied politics. And all of those things are part of my job. So it it brings them all together from doing radio broadcasts, which I love, you know, and it was great some years later being interviewed by Jimmy Young, who when I was a kid, I used to listen to him. That was great. And then using politics, I studied politics, you know, meeting with ministers, secretaries of state, meeting with prime ministers and trying to influence them on motoring campaigns. And then on the other side, using the media to help influence those campaigns. So the way I look at it, you know, you have a campaign, you talk to the politicians, you talk to the media, and you bring the two together, and it makes them more powerful. So things like outlawing cowboy clampers on private land you know that was one of my favorite campaigns getting rid of these guys that would just rip off elderly people take young girls hostage until the mother paid cash i mean outrageous stuff and we spent about 10 years kind of exposing what was going on there and it eventually got them outlawed but it took time to lots of politics it took lots of media but in the end it was successful so for me every day is different today's a cold day so we've got a weather warning out there because obviously we're worried from a breakdown point of view when the weather gets much colder you get more breakdowns so we want people to be prepared for that we launched an ev charging report how much does it cost you on the public highway to recharge so what i love about the job is really every day is different. Now, you mentioned earlier that there was an exclusive you had for us in your conversation with the minister this morning. Can you share that with us? Well, one of the things many people will know I've been quite critical of over over the last decade, over the last 10 years, is is smart motorways. When they were introduced in 2006 on the M42 in the West Midlands, there was a pilot it worked quite well because they had emergency refuge areas every 450 meters it had overhead gantries etc and it kind of helped with congestion what then happened and this was the big scandal over smart motorways they were then rolled out with cost cutting so from 400 meters eras were stretched out emergency refuge areas to 2500 meters or every mile and a half and you know, we said at the time, well, if you break down, you can't choose always where you break down. No. And a mile and a half is, is too far to, to gamble with 
people's lives. And unfortunately, you know, lives have been lost. I've spoken to too many parents, people who've, who've lost sons, daughters, whatever, on these motorways. And also, when they were rolled out, they didn't have the radar technology that they said they would have. It was a complete scandal. There were just 23 miles of smart motorway on the M25 had this stop vehicle detection. The rest of the network had none. Now, we've embarrassed the government into taking some action, and now they have rolled out the stop vehicle detection. It's not perfect. There are various cars, I had to warn my sister, drives an MX-5, because an MX-5 is quite low. Mm. Radar doesn't get you so if you break down in an mx5 or a classic car the radar won't pick you up so you know there are so many issues there so what i've said and this is my kind of exclusive thing what what i've said to to government look smart motorways are never going to be popular and you can you can argue all day long as national highways do that yes they're safer etc but common sense tells you if you're breaking down and there's nowhere to stop, you become a sitting duck. And it doesn't matter how good the technology is. There are too many dependables. Will a red X come on? If a red X comes on, will the vehicles abide by that red X? Will they see me in the fog? There are too many dependables. What we've suggested to minister is run a pilot whereby... You take the inside lane, which, which incidentally, in congestion terms, between 30% and about 45% of people do not use the inside lane on smart motorway because they're petrified there may be a broken down vehicle ahead. So you're not even getting the congestion benefits. So what we've suggested is take the inside lane, put a permanent red X on it, basically make it a hard shoulder, but then run a lane discipline campaign with the police to get better use out of the capacity of the motorway. All too often, you see on a four-lane smart motorway, people are only in the inside two lanes. If you could get people to move over to the left when not overtaking, you would increase capacity by about a third, and therefore you wouldn't be causing more congestion by turning that running lane in, into a hard shoulder. So this is the exclusive, this is what we've put to government, whether they adapt it, who sees, but we will keep pressure on them. And what, one of the things there that, that the government did change about five years ago, before that, if you're a learner driver, you never learned to drive on a motorway because you weren't allowed on a motorway. Okay. About uh, four or five years ago, they changed that overnight so that as a learner, you could go out with an instructor and my son, Finbar King, was the first learner on a motorway. He actually went out at midnight on the M25 with his no instructor, with cameras, and he was on GMTV and, and whatever. So Finbar's claim to fame is he was the first learner on a motorway. Fantastic. Good for him. Brilliant. Do you own a motorhome, caravan, campervan or tent? Head to thatleisureshop.com for all your outdoor living essentials outdoor furniture, leisure vehicle spares, accessories and more. Visit us in-store or shop online. ThatLeisureShop.com Quote the discount code at the checkout, Motorhome Matt, for £10 off when you spend just £100. ThatLeisureShop.com Proud to bring you the Motorhome Matt podcast. Ready for the adventure. For me, this whole thing that's becoming a problem already 
you turn up at M5 services on a bank holiday weekend or a busy weekend, all the charges are full, you know, and even those service areas that have got more than two, and some of them still only have two, but all of them are full. There's no kind of plan for where you park, how you wait. You know, we, we had this incident when we were on one of the rallies and, and it was referred to as Tesla lady. She just parked in the middle of the road, blocked the charges off to everyone because she said she was the next in queue. And so it was chaos. Mm. It's almost like you need something like when took the kids to Clark's shoes and you took a number from the wall and it said number 26. And then you have a screen that says number 26, charger number four. It's almost as if you need something as simple as that. So that's a problem. If you've got a motorhome, where do you wait if the charger's full? There isn't allocated parking for people to park up. So you've got all of those issues. And when it comes to kind of, are there enough charges? Well, there obviously aren't. But there's this whole dilemma, and government has still got a bit of this dilemma. You know, government says, well, we didn't introduce the first filling stations, you know, the first petrol station. Well, no, they didn't. Actually, the AA did. The AA opened the first uh, petrol station at Oldermaston. But the government says, so we're not here to produce charges across the country. That is for industry. And then when you talk to industry, it's like, well, yeah, they'll do it where they think it's profitable, but not necessarily in parts of Cornwall, Devon, Norfolk, the north of Scotland, where you're, you know, depending where it is, you're going to have less throughput, therefore less people charging and less profit. So it really has to be a combination of, of government influencing industry, working with industry and filling in the gaps. I've said to the minister, I was at a motorway service area north of Nottingham recently going up to Sheffield in my EV. I pulled up. There were two charging points. And then I looked around. There were thousands of cars. And I'm thinking, well, currently less than 2% are electric. When 10% of all these cars are electric, yeah. you won't need two chargers. You won't need 20 chargers. You know, you'll need at least 100 chargers. Mm. So that is a massive scale. That is a massive investment. And I don't think we've quite realised. And, you know, even people like me, that 90% of the time I charge at home. I'm quite lucky. I can, I can charge at work when, when the charge points are free. But then... Any long trip over 250 miles or so, I still need to charge on the highway, mm. you know, without waiting two, two hours. So there's a lot that needs to be done, both in infrastructure, investment, and also thinking, planning about where people wait. What is the queuing etiquette? How, how do we introduce that? So there's lots that needs to be improved. Charging an electric car, the dwell time is very different this is the time you're waiting for it to fill, to a, being on a fuel pump filling with diesel or petrol, isn't it? There, you're literally yeah. five or six minutes, but minimum 20 minutes on an electric recharge point. Having said that, as an EV driver, that, that bit is less of a pain because, to be honest, if you're doing a 250-mile journey, you should stop. 20% of deaths on motorways are driver fatigue, drivers falling asleep. So, to be honest, stopping off for 20 minutes having a coffee is actually quite a good thing as long as you can charge in, yeah. in those periods. The way you've got to think about it, the most efficient charging is between 20% of the battery, so don't go below 20%, and 
you don't go over 80%. So between 20 and 80%, it charges much more quickly. So it's a bit of a pain. If you're at a motorway service area and you, you see this Nissan Leaf and it's on 85% and it's then charging really, really slowly, you know, so there's got to be etiquette about that. You know, move your car, let someone else who's only got 20% charge up. So number of issues. But when you plan your journeys and plan in those stops, the actual stopping time, I, I don't find that a pain as long as I can charge. It's when you can't charge and when you have to then search out other chargers and then you're looking all the time at, at your range. So we're here at Newbury Services with Danny. Danny, you manage the car park in here, is that right? Yes, yes, I do, yes. Now, what happens when you've got, you've got two chargers here, yeah. but there's a whole load of people waiting to charge their car. How do you manage that? Well, it's a bit of a struggle, to be honest. There's not much organisation in a sense of where cars can wait, so it can cause a bit of conflict between cars waiting to come in. Quite a debate between the people who was first and whatnot, so I don't really think we are ready. They need to put 10, 20 of these machines at every service station because uh, there's just too many cars, basically, for how little charges we have. So I don't really know how to almost make that even easier for us because there's not enough space for the queue, so I don't really see how it move forwards in the future. Is there some sort of way you could manage the queue with, you know, like a ticketing system? Potentially a machine here of a ticketing system could work. Also, maybe delegating some of the car park space specifically for queuing. Um, but I personally can't see an answer yet. I get so many people at the same time wanting to use the machines. And all I could do is direct them to other machines, which potentially is further out their range of their fuel. So some of them are waiting here and they might run out of charge. So we just need more machines and basically more delegated space for queuing. Yeah, that's the only yeah, brilliant. way. And do you ever get a bum fight? I nearly had a fisty cuff the other day, but managed to um, sort out the situation and sort of gave them a coffee and they chilled out a bit. If coffee helps everyone. But really, we need more machines, more space to queue up. It's just not going to work. Here we have a car now, now both full up. So if any other cars arrive, they've got to wait 10, 20 minutes. And if the person's in there eating their food and their car's already charged, they're getting frustrated here because they don't know their car's finished and they have to wait for them. So it's just a bit of a mix-up at the minute, and hopefully they can improve it for the future, yeah. It's a big learning curve for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, it's going to be exciting to see what happens. But there is one positive thing about electric vehicles that probably hasn't come across. People say, oh, you know, they are so rapid, the acceleration is so quick, and yes, they are. Most electric car drivers, though, do not drive them like that. You are conscious when you're driving, you're conscious that if you go faster, it will use more charge. If, if you put the blower or the air conditioning on two, three, four, it will use more charge. So you tend to find yourself actually driving slightly slower, slightly smoother. So ultimately, there, there could actually be some benefits for road safety there. Mm, that may well be true. A friend of mine's a Tesla owner, and he was shocked how the performance decreases in this kind of temperature we're experiencing now so two degrees the battery life is massively reduced which is not something he was told about when he bought it no in, indeed that is the case on you know cold winter days when it when it it's sub-zero you know you get about 20 percent less out of your battery so if you think you know your range is 200 miles well no it's not it's mm. probably 180 or less yeah now, there's lots of myths, aren't there, around EV cars. Yeah. And, uh, and at the moment, buying an electric car, an alternative fuel car, is a choice. But that choice is going to be taken away from us. And whether that line in the sand is moved into the future, 
to give us time to have an organised plan, that choice will eventually be taken away from us. And one of the big decisions that people, or the criteria for a decision to buy an EV at the moment is about that big trip to see Granny in Scotland. They want the range to be able to do that. Of course, they do that once or twice a year. In reality, there's a different mindset, isn't there, to owning an electrically powered vehicle. The problem I've got is with a motorhome, all our trips are to see Granny in Scotland or the equivalent in terms of journey time. How do we manage that? You know, some of it is getting over what we've done for almost 100 years, you know, turned up a filling station and filled up in four minutes and and driven on. Some of it is psychological. And I certainly know what actually helped me in my journey was going from a petrol car to a plug-in hybrid petrol car and getting used to plugging in at home and elsewhere not that I needed to but but knowing I could do it and getting used to that and having a charger at home and then that helped me make the leap to go full electric you do need to plan ahead you do need certain destination charges whether it's at home whether it's at work where you can charge and one of the things with motorhomes is many of the campsites have not got the electricity capacity to put in decent chargers and you know if you charge too much at some of them you'll you'll short every everything else out so so again you know that kind of infrastructure the links from the grid to some of the campsites all of that infrastructure needs to be improved so there is a lot that needs to be done having said all of that you know We've driven all the way around Scotland, 1,300 miles in in an EV charging, and we did another rally from John O'Groats to Lands End all the way across the country. And we made it, and, you know, we had some hairy moments and doing the Lands End to John O'Groats. We were in a Mustang Mach-E, very nice Ford car. But some of the charge points in Scotland, some of the older charge points couldn't read our car so we thought they weren't working but then a Kia EV6 or something turned up and it was working perfectly so there's even things there for the charge post operators you have to test your charge points on different cars and I I know some do that there's there's one in Basingstoke Instavolt and they're always calling me up saying, Edmund, what EV have you got at the moment can you can you pop over so we we can check it on our charger and you know that's a good thing it shows that instavolt do check their chargers on a whole range of vehicles to make sure there aren't any gremlins within the system currently it can be done you can get from the top of scotland to the south of england however that's fine doing that on a rally but if people are doing that every day to deliver goods to get their motorhomes to go on their holidays then the infrastructure needs to be 10 20 100 times better Now, you say the government make the point that they didn't make the first fuel station. The AA did, and well done you. (laughs) But the government have a fund, don't they, that's been released. It's £950 million. That sounds like a lot of money, but it doesn't feel like anywhere near enough for what's needed to get the electricity where it needs to be at the extremities of the country. Can you tell me a bit more about that fund and how it's being used? Yeah, I mean, the the fund is basically aimed at 
charge point operators who are investing but these are massive massive investments you know if you look at GridServe, who, who've opened a hub in Braintree in Essex, they've opened one in Norwich as well. But these are massive, massive investments. So the government grant is only a very, very small part of that. And I guess some of the worry is that for the investors, it takes quite a long time to get a return on, on these charge points. Charge points are not cheap. You know, prices probably will come down. But currently, you know, it is massive investment. So I think particularly in rural areas, the, the, the government, if, if they're deeming that in that rural area, after 2030 or 2035, you've got to have a zero emission vehicle, then they've got to give you the infrastructure to make that work. Uh, you know, otherwise parts of Britain will, will stop running. Of course, and that would be a first-hand <clears throat> experience for your patrolman, particularly a relay driver. And on that, you know, on t- in terms of your relay trucks, is EV an option? I and mean, we've talked a lot about electric, but mm. there's obviously hydrogen, biomass. You know, mm. I know that you're pursuing other options mm. for your fleet. Where are you with that yeah. at the moment? Number of issues around this. I mean, I mean, one is, and you mentioned our patrols. Now, our patrols don't have a depot. They they keep their vans at home. So again, even with a transit style van. If you haven't got home charging and you're a patrol, you can't clock on at seven o'clock and say, sorry, mate, I've got no charge. You know, you've got to be charged up. So that's something we have to look at, the infrastructure and where people live. Have they got chargers? So, So there's that point. For the recovery trucks, you know, we still think there could be a role for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles or even synthetic fuels. And it's interesting, I'm talking to someone from motorsport industry recently and they're looking very much at synthetic fuels so basically fuels that would be zero emissions but you fill them up in the traditional way so i still think for bigger vehicles i mean we're we're testing a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle at at the moment uh hyundai nexo and we we're doing it for some inner city patrol jobs and it can do everything that a patrol van can do apart from towing it you know it's too small it hasn't got the capacity for that but then also with hydrogen where'd you get it you know there there are about i don't know five or ten hydrogen filling stations in the uk it's crazy so it's kind of chicken and egg we've got this fuel cell vehicle we had it in the north of uh the country we wanted to show it off at excel in 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 london so in the end, we actually put it on a low loader to get there because we didn't know that we would be able to fill it. Now, now that's crazy. And people said, well, should you be doing that? Well, no, probably not. But we wanted to show it off. And also, we wanted to show the fact that there isn't enough infrastructure. So you do need both. So I still think there are some very, very big issues for, for government to address, for industry to address, and, you know, us as drivers to address. Henry Ford's words rattle in my head at this point. You can have any colour as long as it's black. You can have any colour long, any car as long as it's electric. Well, you know, that's right. The government always says they don't pick winners, but it does appear 
that most of the focus is on electric and hydrogen fuel cell, synthetic fuels, I, I still think there's quite a big role for them, particularly for the bigger vehicles. Yeah, I was at the tow show looking at the recovery trucks and they're huge. And, you know, the guys there were saying an electric version of this just won't cut it. You know, these are trucks that obviously drag lorries and buses around. You know, there needs to be an alternative that's viable for that type of vehicle, doesn't there? Well, I think there does, because if you then think about the battery size, that would be needed on those trucks is absolutely ginormous so you then get the economies you know could you afford to put a battery of that size to make a truck go 200 miles you know towing three tons four tons whatever or carrying that that's pretty difficult to add up so yeah hopefully we will get some new technology and hopefully developments around synthetic fuels hydrogen uh, will help so today started for you with quite an important phone call, didn't it? Tell me more. Yeah, as government changes, you get new ministers, they come and go. And part of that is a bit of a pain because you've built up a relationship with a secretary of state or a minister and then they're moved on. And mm. at one stage, you know, transport seemed to be revolving doors. You know, we had new transport secretaries every 15 months or so and that that's difficult not just for us but for society because a lot of transport initiatives you have to plan for them and it's long-term plans so today yeah i was talking to one of the new ministers and had quite a few things on my agenda that that i wanted to raise when it rains the impact that has on your breakdown call-outs as an organisation. And you raise this with the minister, is that right? At the AA, of course, we campaign on behalf of drivers generally. And, you know, we're more than happy to do that, whether it's fuel prices, electricity prices, etc. But also, we have to think about the business. And what we found this winter is on the days where it rained breakdowns from pothole related breakdowns and we know they're related because it's tires it's wheels it's suspension but on the days it rained they increased we had 225 more pothole related breakdowns and you could do it day by day if it rained on the monday they went up tuesday it didn't what's beneath that is, is that the potholes get hidden by puddles people don't see the puddle they hit the pothole they get a puncher. So what I was saying to the minister is, you know, yes, most of these are local roads. Ge generally, motorways and, and A roads that are governed by national highways, generally, they have a bigger budget for maintenance and it's ring-fenced 100%. For local authorities, the money goes in a grant to the local authorities, but they don't always spend it on maintenance. So that's the, the point I was putting across to the minister. You know, can we get local authorities to spend it on maintenance? Because... It's a safety risk, you know, particularly if you're on a cycle or a motorcycle, you know, hitting a pothole can actually be fatal. And mm. there are a number of cases we've highlighted. And even if you're in a motorhome, hitting a pothole, damaging that tyre, damaging the wheel, that can be very expensive. Tyre comes off, it damages the caravan as well. Well, indeed. And then it's difficult to recover, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, these are important issues. And when we talk to drivers, and I always say, if you want to know what drivers think, Get a local paper, any local paper, look at the letters page, and I guarantee you there will be letters about potholes and broken pavements, etc. To me, that's important. It's, mm. it, it's, it's what the person on, on the street is concerned about. So it's trying to get that across to the minister. You know, we, we don't need massive transport schemes. 
we want the basics fixed. Now, one of the big topics, Edmund, on our podcast and for our audience is around electrification, particularly of motorhomes, cars as well when it comes to towing caravans. But cars, we kind of get an idea there are cars that will tow out there to buy now, and that raises lots of questions. But the big question is around the 2030 and 2035 lines in the sand or are they in the road, Mm. and how viable are those deadlines? So for those that are listening that don't know, in 2030, all new vehicles that are sold must be able to drive a significant distance without any pollution, so a hybrid. And by 2035, they must all have zero pollution at the tailpipe. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, it is correct, and it is very, very challenging. Now, there are some positive sides. So I had my first EV 20 years ago, and it was pretty rubbish at a range of 37 miles you know it wasn't very reliable today for cars there are a whole range of vehicles and some brilliant vehicles out there brilliant to drive brilliant to look at and range is getting bigger so in terms of that for cars there's been an improvement because if you'd asked me five or six years ago Edmund are you going to get an EV I'd kind of look at them and think "Mm, they're all slightly naff there's none that really excite me today there are a lot that excite me so that is a positive side there's more choice they are still though more expensive you know on average you're paying five or six seven thousand pounds more for the equivalent petrol or diesel car but then having said that you can get that money back on your running costs because particularly if you can charge at home it is much more economical to charge at home overnight when tariffs are lower compared to the petrol and diesel costs so for those that can't charge at home that's more of a problem we're getting some community charges which is good we're getting some pavement charges which is good but that still needs a lot more for people who live in flats apartments you know they need more and it's not really fair because me charging at home the VAT is just five percent if you have to charge on the street because you haven't got a driveway, it's 20%. You know, that that's hitting people. Arguably, people on lower incomes, if they live in a block or whatever, they have to charge on the street. So there are some equality issues they, they can sort out. But for cars, I think we're almost getting there. But the point you raise, Matt, thinking about vans, thinking about motones there's still a long long way to go we know this from the aa's experience you know if you you think of our two and a half thousand patrols most of them have transit type vans that can tow two tons that have a one ton payload so that's quite important they you know all the tools of the trade are on those vans so that they can fix at the roadside about 86 percent of vehicles that's really important but then when they can't fix them We don't want to call for a low loader because for the environment, that is really bad, getting a big truck. So we do need vans that can also tow. And currently, you know, we looked at a lot of electric vans. You know, we've done rallies in electric vans, etc. But currently, there isn't one that can adequately tow the amount that we need to tow and have the payload. So I'm kind of with you in that, for vans, for motorhomes, for the bigger vehicles, we're really not there yet. You know, there are companies investing, but I think with the timelines of 2030, 2035, 2040, 
I think that's still going to be very, very challenging. And do you think they are written in the sand or are they written in concrete? It's interesting because with new government ministers, people have raised these dates a bit more, whereas before these new ministers, I actually thought these, these, these were pretty solid dates, but people have been questioning them more. I think for cars, they will remain as they are. I think, I, personally, I still think they will stick to 2030 for cars. You know, it doesn't mean you can't drive a petrol or diesel car after 2030. And, you know, some people might think just before 2030, I mean, I'd, I'd love to get a Porsche 911 Turbo just before 2030, and that would, that would see me out my days. You I'd know, love to with, get one now. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And there will be some people, you know, investing in high-spec petrol cars for, yeah. for the future. I think for cars, they'll stick with those, those dates. For vans, for heavy goods vehicles, for kind of motorhomes, I'm not so sure. Yes, there are developments going on, but it's at a lot slower rate than we've seen for cars, which in a way is perhaps understandable in that the cars are mass market they had to hit it sooner but obviously we all know you know vans are the backbone of britain and without vans industry grinds to a halt so it is absolutely crucial but who knows there, there might be a bit of slippage with those dates interesting to have that view in your crystal ball i never considered that that might be an option so that's fascinating when of course you can still drive a petrol diesel vehicle after 2030 you just can't buy a new one one of the questions i've got Evan, is around the supply into our supply chain so motorhome manufacturers will be ordering vehicles six months or a year prior to selling it they can't sell a brand new motorhome in 2030 if it's not at least hybrid which means they're having to order a viable hybrid or alternative fuel chassis in 2029 and it's something we're going to be asking a lot of people within our industry about so the idea that a van or commercial chassis may get an extension on that surely that's going to help isn't it but it will only help if certainty is given the worst thing for the manufacturers for people buying these things is the uncertainty so if they are going to change the timelines, they need to do it sooner so that people can plan for the future. And that's something we've stressed the government all along. In, in last year's autumn statement, you know, they changed company car tax for EVs and they said it, it is going up from 2025. But at least they spelt it out till 2028. And people weren't pleased it was going up. But at least they could see the time frame it was going on. And that helps fleets when they're buying company cars because they've then got a, a time zone to plan for. So I think, you know, for, for vans, for motorhomes, if there are going to be changes, it should be sooner rather than later. And then that helps the suppliers to plan it helps with the new technology. When's it coming on board? Rather than just waiting to the last minute saying, hey, guys, this really isn't working. Let's change it. Because that, that doesn't help anyone. And you could have then bought, you know, 10, 20, 30 new vehicles, and then the date's just extended. So that wouldn't be fair. So I think we need some more clarity from government, particularly on motorhomes. But what do you think is the catalyst for that clarity to give a transport minister confidence to spoil that 
great PR that Britain got, UK government yeah. got, for putting those early dates in the, in, in the calendar? Well, I think industry has to stress to government in the interests of industry, in the interests of, of you know, UK business, some flexibility is probably needed. And I think, you know, that has to come from industry. And it shouldn't just be a token date. It should be an achievable date. I mean, the 2030, we, at the time, we described it as challenging. I still think it's challenging, but I do think it's doable for cars. But as I say, for other vehicles, it, it really is something maybe the industry should, should raise with a louder voice with, with government. Edmund, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you talking to us. Um, and thank you very much for letting us stare into your crystal ball. It's been a real insight, and I have to say, has given me some assurance that perhaps we are on track. We just don't maybe realise it yet. Thanks very much, Matt. A complete pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Motorhome Matt podcast. Remember to check back here for more episodes full of hints and tips and helpful advice. We'll see you soon for another Motorhome Matt podcast brought to you with thatleisureshop.com.